0: SportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show. Our weekly get-together to sit around and talk about what's happening in the world of sports. And this week, let me tell you, it is the ridiculous to the sublime. I'm Dave Mitchell. Nice to have you along here tonight. Boy, it's been a busy week. The Tom Brady case is going strong as the NFL camps start opening up. Hall of Fame weekend is next weekend and Of course, every time the Hall of Fame rolls around, there is another controversy. The Major League Baseball trade deadline is looming tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock is the deadline for any moves to be made by baseball teams. And Ronda Rousey puts her title on the line in UFC 190 on Saturday night. All that coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... News out of Columbus today, not good for four of the Ohio State Buckeyes, led by Joey Bosa, one of the nation's top defensive players, and three others of the Buckeye players. Well, they're going to miss the season opener for the Buckeyes of Virginia Tech after being suspended today. H-backs Jalen Marshall and Dontre Wilson, along with receiver Corey Smith, will all sit out the opener. The suspension is due to unspecified violations. Of athletic department policy. Now rumors floated around the internet today and on Twitter that those four participated in smoking some weed and just generally messing around during some classes. Ohio State is slated to begin defense of their national championship on Labor Day in Blacksburg. Now the Sporting News college football writer Bill Bender reports on what the suspensions mean to the Buckeyes and their opening game against Virginia Tech.
1: Well, the news of these suspensions obviously adds intrigue to a game that Ohio State was expected to just show up, get revenge, and blow out the Hokies in Blacksburg, and I think that's no longer the case. Joey Boza, that's a huge loss, at least for one game. You're talking about the best defensive lineman in college football. Ohio State's going to need Sam Hubbard and Tyquan Lewis to step up, and they'll be on the spot as pass rushers in that game against the Hokies. On the other side of the ball, Corey Smith, Jalen Marshall, Dontre Wilson, those are losses but Ohio State has depth at receiver with Michael Thomas and Noah Brown. I think those guys will be able to step up and, and challenge Virginia Tech's corners, who are both pretty good. But the one thing this does, it adds a little bit more credence to the thought of moving Braxton Miller to the HVAC position, where he can be a threat, because the Buckeyes will need depth at that position for the opener against Virginia Tech.
2: Well, last
0: season, Bosa recorded 55 tackles for the Buckeyes but was one of the nation's biggest defenders behind the line. He is always compared to J.J. Watt, who came out of Wisconsin and is now with the Houston Texans. Bosa recorded 21 tackles for a loss last year in half sacks. Marshall was second on the team with 38 receptions and added 499 yards and 6 TD receptions. He also ran for 145 yards in a TD and led the team with almost 12 yards per punt return and a score. Wilson added 21 catches for 300 yards and three scores and added another 100 on the ground. Smith had 20 catches for 255 yards. So once again, Joey Bosa, Jalen Marshall, Dontre Wilson, and Corey Smith have all been suspended for the season opener for the Ohio State Buckeyes on Labor Day in Blacksburg against the Virginia Tech Hokies. Well, that on top of the news that came out earlier this week, that Quarterback, former quarterback now I guess you should say for the Buckeyes, Braxton Miller is switching positions. Miller is going to move from QB to receiver this year. He had been slated to compete with Cardell Jones and JT Barrett for the Buckeyes starting quarterback job. And the idea of switching to wide receiver first came to Ohio State quarterback Braxton Miller in April when he discussed it with strength coach Mickey Mariotti. And in May, he brought up the possibility to coach Urban Meyer and the two began watching film of Star wide receivers together. Later that month, Miller began sneaking on the practice field at night to catch balls from quarterback J.T. Barrett. National College football writer John Solomon discusses Urban Meyer and the quarterback competition at Ohio State with the news that Miller is moving to wide receiver.
3: There will be all sorts of topics to talk about this week at Big Ten Media Days. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, Illinois' situation with Tim Beckman, Michigan State still being on the rise, is Penn State back? But clearly, the number one question, and I think the biggest question entering this college football season, is who's going to play quarterback at Ohio State? It's an unprecedented situation, having three quarterbacks of this caliber all at one school with a chance to start. I talked to several SEC coaches who said they've never seen anything quite like it in college football. You've got JT Barrett, who finished fifth in the Heisman Trophy voting last year and had the largest body of work just a year ago. And then you have Cardell Jones who came out of nowhere to win three huge games in the national championship with an incredible arm. So who do you start? It's a very delicate situation. I could envision Cardell Jones and JT Barrett both getting playing time during the year. Maybe Braxton Miller gets some playing time at quarterback as well. But it is a delicate situation. It's going to be interesting to see how Urban Meyer handles it. We already know that it's a delicate situation just by the fact that none of the three quarterbacks will be in Chicago at Big Ten Media Days this week. Urban Meyer's got a tough decision to make. It's an embarrassment of riches, but it's going to be an important decision in terms of Ohio State's chances to defend its national title.
0: Miller kept the potential switch from quarterback to wide receiver secret, a fallback plan in case he couldn't return fully healthy to play quarterback after two shoulder surgeries, the latter which caused him to miss all of last season. This has not been a good week for the NFL or Roger Goodell. Most of the NFL teams have actually opened up training camp and they're getting ready for the NFL football season coming up. Actually, a matter of fact, the NFL Hall of Fame game is going to be coming up here in just about a week. Then the preseason games will begin in about two weeks. But even though that's happening, we're still dwelling on what happened in the AFC championship game just a week ago. And a story coming out of Canton, Ohio, where Junior Seau's daughter Sydney will not be allowed to talk about his life for the league. And the NFL, they just continue to make a mountain out of a molehill in this Tom Brady case. After weeks of testimony, appeals, and evidence debate, Commissioner Roger Goodell upheld his four-game suspension for Tom Brady's role in deflating footballs used in the championship game last January. In a 20-page ruling, can you imagine that? It took 20 pages for Roger Goodell to explain himself Tuesday. He upheld the suspension. Goodell said that investigators sought Brady's text messages starting in mid-February, weeks before he destroyed his cell phone, which came around the time investigators were set to meet with Brady. Goodell said that Brady had not communicated with a team staff member who handled the balls before the game But the league did seek tests that they had sent to each other after the game. So you would think if there was this grand conspiracy between Tom Brady and the ball boys, that Brady actually had told them, I want the balls to be just a little bit less PSI, that they would be in text that the league would be talking about. But no, they wanted the text after the case. It's like talking about something after the horses had already left the barn because somebody left the gate open. So, it's going to go to court. Well, to counteract what the NFL did when they filed their lawsuit on Tuesday to uphold and confirm Brady's suspension before Brady had a chance to file his lawsuit, Wednesday, the NFLPA then filed their lawsuit in Minnesota looking to overturn the four-game suspension. Well... The judge then ruled today saying that that NFLPA lawsuit in Minnesota should be transferred to Manhattan as well. The NFLPA is asking the court to make a ruling by September 4th or issue an injunction that will allow Brady to play starting with the season opener six days later against the Pittsburgh Steelers. The NFL, despite... Their legendary reputation of being one of the hallmark corporations around the United States. They've never won in court. Never. A big case has never been won by the NFL. By any commissioner. Pete Rozelle, Paul Tagliabu, or Roger Goodell. You can go all the way back to the AFL-NFL. You can go all the way back to when Al Davis sued the NFL to allow them to move the Raiders to Los Angeles. The league has never won. And the NFL Players Association said on Tuesday that it is going to court to have this suspension reversed. It's what they've been warning about since the beginning of this entire fiasco. The league has already gone to federal court to have a judge affirm the decision and the commissioner's right to hear Brady's appeal, something critics of the league said was a conflict of interest. I'm one of those that said it was a conflict of interest. How in the world can Roger Goodell sit on the appeal when he's the one that issued the ruling? It just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. But this is the league that Roger Goodell has built. He browbeat the NFL Players Association into giving in to this type of treatment in the last collective bargaining agreement. So really the players have only themselves to blame and their union heads. But the funny thing is, Tom Brady was not obliged under the CBA or league rules to provide his phone. See, that's where the problem lies. He was not compelled to give up his phone. Yes, Roger Goodell says that according to a clause in the CBA that says the players must cooperate, He's hanging himself with that clause in the contract. But Tom Brady was not compelled and nor was he held by the CBA to actually turn in his phone. Yet the league based its decision almost entirely on what they say is Brady asking an assistant to destroy the cell phone he had used on the week of the game well on Wednesday despite what was going on and as far as what was happening with the media talking about this constantly incessantly to the point where talk show hosts around the country are so fed up with this situation they don't even want to talk about it anymore but yet what do they do they continue to talk about it well Tom Brady came out and issued a statement on Facebook and let's just paraphrase some of the things that he was saying yesterday on Facebook. Brady says, despite submitting to hours of testimony over the past six months, it is disappointing that the commissioner upheld my suspension based upon a standard that it was probable that I was generally aware of misconduct. The fact is neither I nor any equipment person did anything of which we have been accused. Commissioner Goodell dismissed my hours of testimony, and it is disappointing that he found it unreliable. Brady went on to say that I also disagree with yesterday's narrative surrounding my cell phone. I replaced my broken Samsung phone with a new iPhone after my attorneys made it clear to the NFL that my actual phone device would not be subjected to investigation under any circumstances. Now, that raises a question. Why would Tom Brady destroy the cell phone that he used? Well, let's take a look at it from a common sense point of view. Something that the national media doesn't seem capable of doing. And that would be, maybe it had something to do with the fact that he's got a supermodel wife, for crying out loud. Why in the world would Tom Brady want to put that cell phone in the hands of whomever it is maybe looking at it, It was never told to him that it would only be Roger Goodell. It could have been anybody in the NFL office. That's just one reason. Maybe it was because of business. Maybe Tom Brady was constituting business on that cell phone that he did not want in the league hands. I'm not saying that it was nefarious business. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that it was possible that business was done. I know from the fact that I would not want my cell phone in the hands of somebody else. Not at all. Personal contacts. How many personal contacts do you think Tom Brady has in his phone and the personal contacts of maybe even his wife Giselle's phone could be in there also? They don't want their numbers given out. They don't want their addresses given out. And the NFL, remember, they have a long history of leaking private information from players, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it happens. The wonderlick test scores, those come out every year around draft time. They're always leaked, and the NFL always comes back with, well, gosh, we don't know how the media got those. How about medical information? Just look just a couple of months ago, not even a month ago, it was John Pierre Paul with the New York Giants when he got into his problem with fireworks. The medical information got out to ESPN. What about drug information from some of these players that are suspended? It seems like that type of info always gets out. And it's always by the NFL. Always. And I understand what Tom Brady's talking about with Phone Story. I had, and I do have, a Samsung Galaxy 6. I would not recommend... This phone to anybody. It is chock full of problems. Believe me. I went from a Samsung 5, and I know anybody that knows anything about cell phones, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Anybody who knows anything about cell phones, especially Samsung, I had a perfectly working Samsung Galaxy 5. They came through with this new operating system update back in January called the Lollipop operating system, and it totally destroyed the way the phone worked the battery life went down i started dropping calls i couldn't do three-way calls anymore for business it just became a nightmare they looked at it said there was nothing wrong with it i went in and i traded it in for a samsung galaxy 6 they told me this phone would take care of all those problems wouldn't have that problem anymore got home couldn't make three-way calls the battery life was terrible And they told me that there were conflicts between applications that I was using and the operating system. Yet it wasn't my cell phone carrier's fault. It was the phone. It was the Samsung phone that had the problem. Well, I understand what Tom Brady is saying when he's moving from a Samsung to an iPhone. I would like to do the same thing. Unfortunately, I'm locked into a contract. Tom Brady, with all the money that he and Giselle make they can just afford to go buy the phone and then just trade it in or throw it up against the wall, which I've threatened to do at my cell phone carrier several different times. So I understand the phone story. And when you go into the store and you do trade in your phone, for example, when I did from the Samsung 5 to the 6, the first thing they did was they transferred my contacts over and then erased the memory on the phone. Now, the one thing that Roger Goodell and this report doesn't say is how Tom Brady destroyed the phone, how his assistant allegedly destroyed the phone. Nobody seems to know how that happened. But if it was done the way my cell phone carrier does it, they just immediately go in and they erase the memory. Why? Because they're going to refurbish that phone and sell it again. That's the way cell phone companies work. So I understand what happened there as far as if that's how the cell phone Was destroyed, but that's not anything that you'll hear the national media talk about. So Brady goes on to say As a member of the union, I was under no obligation to set a new precedent going forward, nor was I made aware of any time during Mr. Wells' investigation that failing to subject my cell phone to investigation would result in any discipline. Now the media says. That the CBA gives Goodell all the power, that he can request anything he wants to from the players, that this CBA gives him the right to subject them to anything that he wants. But I suggest that Goodell may have that kind of power, but not to circumvent our Constitution nor compel a player to possibly even incriminate himself. Now, I'm not saying that Brady is guilty of anything. Matter of fact, I, like I said, I think this is much ado about nothing. And I'll go into detail as to why here in a moment. But I just think this is just a mountain out of a molehill. This is simply
2: stupid
0: by the NFL to even continue this entire situation. Goodell may think he's all-powerful, and he may contend that he's all-powerful, but I suggest that if he goes into a courtroom... ...and tells the judge that he has that kind of power based upon the CBA... ...the judge is going to laugh him right out of the courtroom... ...because Goodell is not more powerful than our Constitution. Brady goes on to say that we turned over detailed pages of cell phone records... ...and all of the emails that Mr. Wells requested. We even contacted the phone company to see if there was any possible way... ...we could retrieve any or all of the actual text messages... From my own phone. Now, I understand that too. I've tried to do that. I have called the cell phone company and I've said, can I get copies of old texts that I made maybe about a year ago? And the cell phone company, they do not allow that to happen. They do not issue texts outside of a subpoena from a court of law. And the NFL, despite all the power that they seem to think they have, do not have subpoena power. So that took that right off the table. Brady says, in short, we exhausted every possibility to give the NFL everything we could and offered to go through the identity for every text and phone call during the relevant time. Regardless, the NFL knows that Mr. Wells already had all the relevant communications with Patriots personnel because they already had the text of the ball billies. So if that's the case, why did they need Tom Brady's text? Now the question is raised, why did the Patriots accept the penalties and suspend the ball boys? Well, on Wednesday, New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft blasted the NFL for upholding the suspension on Brady, and now he's apologizing to the team's fans for agreeing to accept the league's penalties.
1: I want to apologize to the fans of the
0: New England Patriots and Tom Brady. I was wrong to put my faith in the league. Given the facts, evidence, and laws of science that underscore this entire situation, it is completely incomprehensible to me that the league
1: continues to take steps to disparage one of its all-time great players and a man for whom I have the
0: utmost respect. Personally... This is disappointing to me. Kraft went on to admit the Patriots had already provided the league with every cell phone of every non-NFLPA employee that they requested, including head coach Bill Belichick. Now, what's been going on here lately is simply and to the point, Tom Brady and his so-called legacy, and I don't know when we ever became a country of worrying about a legacy. I just don't understand that. A legacy is a legacy, but why are we worried about a legacy 20 years from now when we're in the present? The fact of the matter is is that Tom Brady is being labeled a cheater. Well, what is the definition of a cheater? Because 15, 20 years ago, the things that Tom Brady is doing, the things that some of these players are doing was called gamesmanship. For example, Lester Hayes, a cornerback with the Oakland Raiders years ago back in the 70s, he used to cover himself. And I'm not exaggerating. Those that remember Lester Hayes will remember this. He used to cover himself in Stick'em. So whenever the ball got near him as a DB, the ball would stick to him. The league just amended the rules and eliminated Stick'em. Fred Bolitnikoff used to cake Stick'em on his hands as a wide receiver with the Raiders. With a tongue depressor. He used to just cake his hands with it so the ball would stick. The league just quietly eliminated that practice. The tackle eligible play without warning. It used to be the tackle, all he had to do was go to the referee and say, I'm eligible, and it would be a complete surprise to the defense, and the tackle could catch a pass. Well, the league. Softly and quietly eliminated that until they finally made it so that the referee, whenever a tackle came in and announced that he was eligible, the referee came right on his microphone and said, Number what you wanna call it, is tackle eligible. And of course, what the Patriots did a year ago with spreading out the offensive line. Now the league has quietly eliminated that. The fumble rooski used to be able you could do that. Not anymore. The Raiders, they made it classic. You know, go back. Just look at all the things that the Raiders did that was called gamesmanship. It wasn't called cheating. It was called gamesmanship. The Raiders won a football game against the San Diego Chargers back in the 80s when they fumbled the football forward into the end zone on purpose until they finally jumped on it to win a game at the buzzer. It was called skirting the rules, but it was never called cheating. All of these rules were changed without penalty, without circumvention by the commissioner. They were just changed. And I suggest that this is one of those times. You could have just set a new rule that stated that the balls had to be a certain amount or even take it so that the league provides the balls instead of the players. Now remember, it was in 2007 that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning went before the league and said, let us use the balls for game day during the week of practice. And the league relented and said, okay, we'll do that. But all of these rules, all of these so-called cheating rules that I contend as gamesmanship, were changed without penalty. And the way that the league found out about this, the rumor is, is that DeQuell Jackson, For Indianapolis, the linebacker intercepted a pass by Brady, picked up the ball, and he said it felt a little spongy, and he pointed it out to one of the coaches on the Colts staff, and they alerted the officials to it. So if a defensive player could tell that the ball was a little spongy, or he thought it was a little spongy, let me ask a question. Why couldn't the umpire? The constant thing that I've heard throughout this entire debacle has been the fact that A quarterback can tell. A player can tell if the ball isn't up to proper pressure. Well, if that's the case, if a defensive player can tell just touching the ball once, how come the umpire who handles the football every play because he's setting it in play on the ground, how come he couldn't tell that there was a problem with the football? How come he didn't say, hey, hold it? Time out. There's something wrong. Yeah, they said they finally did it at halftime. But unfortunately, according to the league, that's too late. Why weren't the officials penalized in this situation? And if having one or two PSI less per football is so bad, if it's supposed to give the quarterback better grip, then why are they allowing gloves for quarterbacks? The sticky gloves that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning like to use. Why are they allowing that if there is some sort of scientific reason that the less PSI makes it easier to throw the football in inclement weather? So what's going to happen here? I'm predicting a long court battle. I think you're going to see this thing drag out throughout the season. Tom Brady's not going to miss a game. He will get the injunction that will allow him to play. Now, the only question is, will will Roger Goodell have the guts to put Tom Brady on the commissioner's exempt list for four weeks? Will he have the guts to do it like he did with Ray Rice and Adrian Peterson and Greg Hardy? And that's another question. Boy, bring this question up to your friends that are against Tom Brady. Tom Brady gets a four-game suspension for deflating footballs being involved in a conspiracy to deflate footballs. And Greg Hardy gets a four-game suspension for beating his wife? And Roger Goodell says that the domestic violence in the NFL is going down under his new policies? I don't know. Roger Goodell needs to take a domestic violence class, I believe. I think Brady's going to play. A settlement will end it all, probably with a fine. But this is not going to be over any time Well, and another black eye for the NFL, because Junior Seau is going to be inducted posthumously into the Pro Football Hall of Fame next week here in Canton, but his family will not be allowed to give a speech during the ceremony. It's a controversial decision by the Hall of Fame, and no matter what they say, it's seen as a way of silencing the family of a player who suffered from CTE. But this policy is not unique to Seau. In fact, it was created in 2009, the same year Seau retired, and three years prior to his suicide. The family of Junior Seau reiterated its stance on Monday that his daughter, Sydney, should be able to speak live and in her own words at her father's induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame next weekend. Last week, the family was blindsided by the Hall of Fame's decision to show only the video of out at his enshrinement but Pro Football Hall of Fame president Dave Baker explained on CBS Sports Radio's the Doug Gottlieb show that the Hall of Fame has stances and procedures for this type of incident
4: the policy really was implemented it was made in 2009 it was implemented in 2010 and, and, and it was actually used in 2011 and the policy was, frankly, you had a, a an unwieldy program that tends to be hours on and hours on and hours on and long. And during those days, presenters would actually speak from the podium to present, you know, the Hall of Famer being inducted. And some of those speeches began to run towards 30 minutes and make a, what is a long program even longer. So in 2010, the move was made to make the presenter. Uh, a, a video presenter and in this case Sydney will be speaking just like the other seven presenters will be speaking for the other seven in Chinese inducted into the Hall of Fame but she'll be speaking by video now in Junior's case it'll actually be a longer video than some of the others because the Hall of Famer will be there to give his speech uh, in 2011 this isn't you know, this wasn't decided in this just this case, but it was the policy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame um, you know, that was employed in 2011 when Les Richter uh, was elected posthumously the all-time great. Uh, and, and again, Sydney will be speaking. There's nothing being done to suppress her voice in this. As a matter of fact, we're trying to give her a, a platform. But all the presenters speak by video. And only the Hall of Famers speak from the podium. And, and, and the goal here is to make that Hall of Famer even more special. Uh, I, I can tell you that we've been in contact with, uh, with Sydney, uh, with the executor of the state, with Sydney's mother. They all understand that. They all support this policy. That's what they tell us. Um, you know, what we want to do is celebrate the life of Junior Sale and, and not just Junior Sale but they're the first ones to say that they also want to celebrate the lives of the other seven guys. And I think Sydney is excited to do this. Uh, She's looking forward to do this. And it's going to be a great weekend, despite some of the press that's out there.
2: Dave, obviously I know you're responding in some levels to the New York Times article by Ken Belson, uh, to to which uh, the insinuation is that this is because the NFL is protective of, of the shield and the diagnosis of traumatic brain injury and no one wants somebody to go down that path. Instead, to keep it about the players and about all they have done. How much of the lawsuits and CTE has to do with the decision to maintain the previous policy?
4: Absolutely none. This was the previous policy before Junior Sale came up. And again, we're not trying to suppress anybody from saying there's gonna be multiple other opportunities for Sydney to be interviewed or to talk to media it's just that only hall of famers speak from that podium and, and we're going to do our very best to celebrate the life of junior sale and the career of junior sale and and, and that's what will be done that's the job of the pro football hall of fame D- 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 Dave,
2: Dave I, listen, I, I understand that and i just wonder though if in kind of your heart of hearts and especially because i know you and how emotional a guy you are i just wonder if you like well listen i understand this is a policy but maybe this is a bad policy, and you haven't been on this. You went on this job when the policy was enacted. Um, yeah. It is one of those things where, like, let's let his daughter speak.
4: I do believe that this is the right thing, and we want to be very sensitive to Sydney. We want to be very insens- or sensitive to the family, uh, and I think we're doing that, by the way. But she's going to have the opportunity to say whatever she wants in her presentation already, to go out there and say it again. Then there's the question of who else wants to say something? And what, when the next opportunity comes up and somebody is elected posthumously, who wants to speak then? What about the wife? Or what about the mother? Or what about the father? Last year's ceremony was a great ceremony, and there are wonderful stories of emotion, but it lasted almost five hours long. And, and, and in some respects, we've got to be fair to all the guys that are in it yeah. so that they all have an opportunity. Michael Strahan didn't get up last year until after 11.15 uh, on the East Coast. So we want to try to do it. We can't tell. And not, there's not any of them that can tell their whole story during this time. Sure. But, but we want to make sure there's going to be, what we're doing is giving a platform to Cindy, not suppressing anything she wants to say. And the only thing I can tell you is we're informed by them that they understand this policy and they're excited uh, to be involved. Well, no matter
0: what, Baker says this is another black eye for the NFL. The Seau family has filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the NFL seeking to receive money equal to what Seau would have earned if he had lived. The news that Sidney Seau would not be allowed to speak for her father as he wished spurred an outcry among fans in San Diego where he played much of his career. Some critics say the Hall was trying to silence the family because of Seau's suicide in 2012, and he was found to have a degenerative brain disease linked to repeated hits to the head, and they're afraid of what Sydney may say on the podium. In its statement, though, the family said it never intended to use the Hall of Fame as a platform to discuss the serious mental health issues facing the NFL today, which are most appropriately addressed in a legal forum. Seau will be inducted along with Jerome Bettis, Tim Brown, Charles Haley, Bill Polian, Will Shields, Mick Tinglehoff, and Ron Wolfe. The ceremony will be held in Canton next weekend on August the 8th. Well, first it was Becky Hammond getting an assistant coaching gig with the San Antonio Spurs, then coaching their summer league team to the championship two weeks ago in Las Vegas. Now the NFL has followed suit, thanks to their Head coach Bruce Arians. On Monday, the Arizona Cardinals announced the hiring of Jenny Welter to the team's coaching staff. It's believed that she's the first woman to hold a coaching position of any kind in the NFL. Welter will work with the Cardinals' inside linebackers and will coach throughout training camp and the preseason as a training camp preseason intern. Welter is 37. And she's been making history throughout her entire career. In February, she became the first female coach in a men's professional football league when she was hired by the Texas Revolution of the Champions Indoor Football League to coach linebackers and special teams. And who is the Revolution's general manager? Hall of Fame wide receiver Tim Brown. In February of 2014, she became the first female to play a non-kicking position in a men's professional football league when she played running back and special teams for the Revolution. Welter played professional football for more than 14 years as a linebacker, mostly with the Dallas Diamonds of the Women's Football Alliance. She helped lead them to four championships. I started playing football
5: 15 years ago and I fell in love. It was... I mean I actually fell in love as a little kid but I didn't have a chance to play until after college. And I changed my whole life around to be able to make that happen. I still remember the day I got my first check to turn pro as a player, and it was a year, it was 2004, we won our first championship, and I got a check for $12. It was a dollar a game, but that's what technically made us pro, and that was before the time when you could take a picture of the check and keep it, it was either you cash it or you keep it, so I kept it, and, you know, I mean... It's it kind of special. I bring it with me everywhere. It's actually, it's actually in my purse upstairs. Um, but I didn't start playing football to be here. I didn't even dream that it was possible. And I think the beauty of this is that, though it's a dream I never could have had, now it's a dream other girls can grow up and have. And so I guess if that makes me a trailblazer, then... Right. I'm honored, yeah. you know, well, then I'm honored. But you know what, that only happens with the best possible team, and that and that comes with, you know, the foresight of somebody like Bruce who just out of the strength of his will, I would say that's how it happened.
0: Welter will join linebacker coaches Bob Sanders, Larry Foote, and the recently hired LeVon Kirtland. The co-founders of A Call to Men, a national organization that encourages men to end violence against women, are advocating that former Ravens running back Ray Rice be given a second chance in the NFL. Tony Porter and Ted Bunch, the co-founders of A Call to Men, each of whom has worked with Rice since November, believe that Rice deserves an opportunity to be an NFL running back again. But will the NFL owners give him that chance? Fox Sports' Petrus Papadakis and Clay Travis ponder Rice's NFL future.
6: His wife, ultimately, then fiance, has the decision. If she is willing to deal with it and work with him, then I don't understand how everybody else in the world of the NFL can't allow him an opportunity to continue to play. Look, we talk about this all the time, right, Petros? This is not, the NFL is not known for its morality in the locker room. There are guys on every NFL team who have done pretty heinous things that are playing I think Ray Rice got singled out. It's time. He's paid his penance. He deserves to play again. Yeah, the video upset people. There's no doubt about
7: it. It was an upsetting video. People were shocked. Was the penalty an overreaction? Was it botched? Yeah, I think you can pretty clearly say that. And there's a lot of comparisons you can make and say, wow, Ray Rice is really getting the bad end of this deal. But at the same time, somebody, because he's kind of the poster child for this violence, that video, somebody's going to have to take a chance and bring him in to the team. And... I think that would go over fine. I think we're ready.
6: People have gotten over I, I think we're ready sense. to feel like he paid his price. My issue would be
5: – like
6: uh, That's a question. Those, I think a yeah. lot of NFL teams are afraid that if they, that if they brought him in, suddenly there would be people picketing and there would be an issue, and it would distract I him mean, the I mean, to our
7: earlier discussion, performance sadly outweighs whatever situation – He's just not good enough. That's
6: what, that's what my
7: concern is. His performance – he was always a great back, there's no doubt. His performance started to dissipate. In his last year. Now, one of two things could happen. He could get back on the field and completely have lost his desire to go in there again. Because as a running back, you kind of have to get hit every week to keep it going unless you've been injured. He's not been injured, so he might not have it anymore. Or he might be, as we would call, MC fresh legs with just fresh legs running all over everybody, it could go one of two ways. But I think he deserves another chance, and I think he'll get it.
6: Same question people are asking about Adrian Peterson, by the way. He feels like he's going to be electric and unstoppable on the field because he set out for a year after his incidents off the field, which honestly were every bit as severe, I think, as what Ray Rice did. And nobody's questioning whether or not he should be allowed to come back.
5: Uh, do, are we going to always? Rem- is his name always going to be synonymous with
7: this? Ray Rice, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Because uh, not that he was a faceless player before all this happened, but – I mean, it's not Tom Brady. We're talking about a guy most people first heard about
6: all over the news media world Mm -hmm. when this happened. And the craziest thing about this story to me is nobody ever criticized the state of New Jersey for the way they didn't punish him. In a criminal context, everybody immediately said, "Why isn't the NFL doing something here?" Right. And it's—he's playing a game. It's his—it's his job. It's not the right. NFL's job to discipline him.
5: Which is another point, though. His wife forgives him, but then does that mean that the NFL should forgive him just because his wife did? You know what I mean? Like, I it's think like, it's, so, then there's yeah. the pundits would say, "Oh, well, so now just okay, his wife said it's okay, so now the NFL should follow suit." I mean, they also then there's the pundits that say, you know, setting that standard that it's not acceptable and there's no tolerance for that in this league. Now, you look around, and there's case after case after case, but you can't unsee that video. That's
6: why I say if the video hadn't come out, Joe Mixon, who is a big-time player for Oklahoma, did the same thing to a a fellow student in in a bar in Oklahoma, and he got suspended for a year, and he's playing this year.
0: Porter and Bunch say he wants Rice's daughter, Raven, to remember him for the good he did for years rather than a mistake he made one night. Well, the next couple of days could make or break the 2015 Major League Baseball season for several teams including the Kansas City Royals, the Toronto Blue Jays, so on and so forth because tomorrow at 4 is the trade deadline in Major League Baseball and the Toronto Blue Jays are the major players so far in the sweepstakes but a monster three-way deal is set today A simple-looking trade between the Dodgers and the Marlins involving right-hander Matt Latos and slugger Michael Morse, which was said to be completed yesterday morning, instead was put on hold because a third team, the Atlanta Braves, became involved, and the end result was a three-team, 13-player blockbuster trade that was completed today. The Dodgers received Latos and Morse from the Marlins, plus pitchers Alex Wood, Jim Johnson, Luis Avalon, and Bronson Arroyo, along with infield prospect Jose Peraza from the Braves. The Braves receive infield prospect Hector Oliveira, minor league pitcher Zachary Bird, and major league lefty Paco Rodriguez. They also get a competitive balance draft pick from the Marlins. And the Marlins receive three minor league pitchers from the Dodgers, right-handers Jeff Bingham, Victor Arahu, and Kevin Guzman. Latos and Wood fill the spots in the Dodgers rotation immediately. Johnson improves the right-handed side of the bullpen, and it's been speculated that some of the Dodgers would receive from the Braves, could be used in another trade or trades before the deadline, although according to sources, that really doesn't appear to be the case. So it looks like the Dodgers have come out better in this deal than either the Marlins or the Braves, but time will tell on that. Another trade that was done today, well, the Toronto Blue Jays have officially agreed to acquire star lefty David Price from the Detroit Tigers. No money is changing hands in the deal, according to Joel Sherman of the New York Post, as Toronto will be responsible for the rest of Price's $19.75 million annual tab. Major League Baseball insider from CBS Sports, John Heyman, breaks down
4: the move. They like the Toronto young pitchers. Uh, they may have asked for Sanchez or Stroman, didn't get them. Norris is the guy who's going to be going back from Toronto. Very talented guy. Started off the season with the Blue Jays, had some problems, and they sent him back down. But a very talented, very young pitcher. So uh, it's a good start for Detroit. We'll see what the rest of the uh, the hall is. But uh, Toronto, the big story of this uh, of this uh, summer. Uh, amazingly getting Troy Tulowitzki out of nowhere and now landing David Price.
0: Of course, Price is a pure rental with one function, driving his new team to and through the postseason this year. In another blockbuster last night, the Philadelphia Phillies sent left-hander starting pitcher Cole Hamels to the Texas Rangers for five players, Priya Desai. Reports on this trade.
2: For the first time in his career, Cole Hamels is heading to the AL. The Rangers have agreed to trade for the Phillies' ace, plus reliever Jake Diekman. In return, Philadelphia will receive outfielder Nick Williams, catcher Jorge Alfaro, pitcher Jared Eikhoff, pitcher Matt Harrison, and minor leaguer Alec Asher. With the move, Texas lands one of the biggest aces on the trading block and will become just the second team Hamels has ever played for. On the year, he's posting a 3.64 ERA, but he's striking out 9.6 batters per nine innings, his highest rate since his rookie year way back in 2006. If any team could use pitching help, it was the Rangers. The Texas staff has posted the third worst ERA in the majors, one spot ahead of Hamill's old team, Philadelphia.
0: Among those prospects, the Rangers sent to the Phillies. Three are listed within Major League Baseball's top 30 Ranger prospects. Williams is at number 5, Alfaro number 6, and Asher at number 29. Hamels had been the subject of many trade rumors leading up to the baseball non-waiver trade deadline on Friday. USA Today's Bob Nightingale reported that the Astros had put together a strong package for Hamels, but he exercised his no-trade rights to the team, which is a surprise. Why he would rather go to the Rangers than the Astros right now who are a young and up-and-coming team that is battling for a playoff spot is, is a surprise. But Hamels, in his last start for the Phillies, well, he left them in style. He threw a no-hitter against the Cubs on Saturday, the first time the Cubs had been no-hit since 1965. Other trades around Major League Baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals left fielder Matt Holliday left Wednesday night's one nothing loss to the Cincinnati Reds with a right quadriceps strain. Holiday was injured in the first inning after running to first base on a double play ball, and the seven-time All-Star had an MRI later in the night to determine the severity in the injury. And after that, well, the Cardinals became proactive, something the Cleveland Indians are never accused of. The Indians are always reactive, and what did they do? Well, they went ahead and traded outfielder Brandon Moss. To the Cardinals, who wanted to immediately make up for the loss of Holiday, no matter how long he's going to be out. The Cardinals, in return, sent left-handed prospect Rob Kaminsky to the Indians for Moss, who's 31 years old. Moss can play the outfield and first base, both positions the Cardinals need right now. Moss has hit .217 with the Tribe, with a .289 on-base percentage. The Cardinals went after Power, in the lineup with Holiday out, and they got it in Moss because he hit 15 home runs and slugged four ten this year. Kaminsky's 20 years old. He's gone 6-5 on the year with a 2.09 ERA in 17 starts for the high single-A Palm Beach Club in the Cardinals minor league system. A 2013 draft, Kaminsky has a solid breaking ball and ended the season as one of the Cardinals' top 10 prospects. Another trade that the Cleveland Indians made earlier this week, they added to the Los Angeles Angels outfield in the midst of what should be and could be a down-to-the-wire division race with the Houston Astros. The Angels traded for David Murphy of the Indians and David DeJesus of the Tampa Bay Rays, and that was after they acquired Shane Victorino from the Boston Red Sox on Monday. Interim GM Bill Stoneman said the team is still looking for another left-handed bat. Now it's got two. David Schoenfeld, sweet spot blogger for ESPN, reports.
1: Well, I like these, these moves. You know, yep. they're sort of under-the-radar moves of all three veteran outfielders, but it adds depth, versatility mm-hmm. to the offense. Really, outside of Mike Trout, Albert Pujols, the Angels offense not that good this year. In particular, they were looking for a couple left-handed bats. They get that in Murphy and DeJesus. You know, two kind of veteran guys put the ball in play, good contact hitters. Uh, look for a platoon in left with Victorino and Murphy. And DeJesus can uh, platoon at DH with the young guy CJ Crone. So nice, nice moves for the Angels. I think they're done. You know, the rotation, it, it's pretty solid. It's been really good in, in July. They're going to get Jared Weaver back. I, I think Garrett Richards um, is kind of getting back into that groove of, that he had last mm-hmm. year when he was so good. Look for him to have a really big uh, final two months. Maybe a bullpen arm, but I think they're set. They wanted to improve the offense, and they've done that. Not big moves, but the offense is a little better than it was a couple days ago.
0: The Indians picked up double-A shortstop Eric Stamets, a 23-year-old. I love this trade for, that the Indians just made, a 23-year-old hitting two forty eight Got three home runs this year while repeating double-A. I said repeating double-A. And as you would predict from that line, he's a glove-first guy. During spring training, Mike Sosha, the Angels manager, said that Stamets has major league defensive skills, but the bat obviously lags behind. No kidding. He's a 23-year-old in double-A. He's had to repeat double-A. That's like a 12-year-old repeating the third grade. This is a typical Indian salary dump at this time of year. You cannot say anything more. I like the other trade that the Indians made, sending Moss for Kaminsky, but this David Murphy trade, absolutely fascinating. Over in the National League, as far as the Reds are concerned, Johnny Cueto was acquired Sunday by the Kansas City Royals in a trade from Cincinnati. Cueto, who's 29 years old, joined his new teammates for the first time Tuesday and said he's excited about being part of the American League's best team, one he might make even better. On the Ohio Baseball Weekly show Monday night Mark Donahue joined me and gave his opinion of the
8: deal. Well, I wanted them to get Raw M- Modesty from Kansas City on a, uh, even up uh, their number one draft choice <laughs> and that wasn't going to happen. So yeah. I think based on what has happened this year and, and the Reds have no left-handers in the minor leagues of any of any note uh they don't have any they're they're going to lose probably a couple left-handers off the 40-man roster. And, yeah, I think it's a pretty good haul given the situation. Uh, the people in Kansas City, that's what I always look to. Uh, they're, they're very, very happy to have Johnny Cueto because that team came within a few outs of winning the World Series last year. And they think that, you know, Cueto will be the difference maker. And they're probably right. But they admit they gave up a lot. And if we're, if Cueto were to get hurt, or they don't re-sign him, or they don't win the World Series, uh, that trade may come back and haunt them for years to come, because I think the Reds did pretty well. Given the circumstances, uh, given the fact that this is a two-month rental for a player, uh, I, I think Cincinnati did pretty well on this trade.
0: Cueto won 20 games for the Reds last year, and he'll make his debut for the Royals on Friday in Toronto. The Royals also acquired utility man Ben Zobrist, and... They also were paid $2.6 million from Oakland. So the rich keep getting richer. And teams have spoken with the Reds about Aroldis Chapman. But they are not going to trade him, according to reports. Other than the New York Yankees, who continue to monitor all bullpen arms on the market, virtually every team that has inquired on Chapman has turned in another direction. Among those clubs that have been linked to Chapman in recent days, That's the Giants, the Diamondbacks, the Blue Jays, and the Nationals. But sources say that none of those teams are still seriously pursuing him, and there is widespread doubt that Reds owner Bob Castellini really wants to move him. Mark Donahue and I will talk more about this and what the Reds and Indians did through the trade deadline tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. That's coming up on Monday night on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. We'll join you at 9 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk. Well, finally tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks for joining us here this evening. But our final story tonight has to do with this Saturday night. One of the big nights in UFC history, UFC 190, the pay-per-view, 60 bucks will get you the honor to watch this fight. And it's one of the few times, if not the first time, that a woman will headline a pay-per-view activity. And that's because Ronda Rousey, is on a mission. Rousey is practically the only fighter, forget woman, she's the only fighter right now that is a draw for any type of martial arts or boxing activity. And right now, hell hath no fury like Ronda Rousey upset because she is extremely upset (laughs) heading into Saturday night's championship matchup. They're back in Brazil on pay-per-view and Rousey will take on the outspoken and literally outmatched Beth Korea. Now, there is no real sense in pretending that this is anything other than a stay-busy fight for Rousey because the odds makers have pegged her as a 15-1 to favorite over the Brazilian, even on her home turf. Korea is game. She deserves credit for talking her way into the matchup. This is not going to be a competitive fight. Forget this. I mean, if you want to watch it, great, because Ronda Rousey, is fun to watch. But Korea, well, she did her best to increase the hype, but she did the worst thing she could do for her health prior to the fight, and that was upset Rousey. See, things took a turn in May when Korea told a Brazilian media person that she hoped Rousey didn't commit suicide after losing her UFC title. See, Rousey's father took his own life when Rousey was a young girl. And the tragedy was understandably one of the turning points of Rousey's athletic career. And after hearing Korea's comments, well, Rousey was less than thrilled. She's repeatedly vowed to make an example of the undefeated Brazilian. She may be undefeated, but she is not even deserving of being in the same ring right now with Ronda Rousey. But then again, to be honest, I don't think anybody is deserving of being in the ring. With Ronda Rousey because Rousey has looked unstoppable in the UFC. She's finished each of her five opponents inside the distance and barely breaking a sweat. Her last two opponents, Kat Zingano and Alexis Davis, well they lasted a combined 30 seconds. This thing may last more than 30 seconds but that's because Korea is going to dance around the outside of the octagon and try to stay away from Rousey for a little bit to try to frustrate her. But if Rousey gets her hands on Korea, this thing will be done. I look for a first-round knockout or submission by Ronda Rousey. Rousey is primed and ready. That's going to do it for tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Glad to have you along here this evening. Boy, it's been an excellent evening of sports here tonight, and the trade deadline will conclude tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. Don't forget to join us again on Monday night, With the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, Mark Donahue and I will talk about the Reds and the Indians at 9 o'clock and what they did after the trade deadline and what is left for the rest of the year. Don't forget, next week, we'll be back on the air with another Ultimate Sports Talk show at 7 o'clock. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, tonight. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Once again, I'm Dave Mitchell. Enjoy your weekend and enjoy your week, everybody. Good night.